Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to be looking at the great classic of Indian literature, the Bhagavad Gita, from a psychological perspective. My guest is Professor Kiran Kumar Salagame, who is a former chair of the psychology department at the University of Mysore in India. He is also the Vice President of the International Transpersonal Association and is the author of The Psychology of Meditation, a Contextual Approach. Welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be with you. Okay, it's a pleasure too. Yes. So, you've been exploring Indian psychology. You've been endeavoring to integrate modern Western psychology with the with the great classical, spiritual, mystical literature of India. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's a difficult task. Yeah, it is indeed a difficult task because uh, modern psychology has emerged from an empirical standpoint, whereas the whole of the Indian tradition has a transcendental basis. So, uh, when you bring them together, there are lots of ontological and epistemological issues to be resolved. Yes. yes. And, uh, and that's been really the thrust of, of your work for decades. Yeah, that's, that has been like that because I started getting interested in the Indian tradition as a psychology student, not as a Indian or as a Hindu or, or, or from any Sanskritist uh, background or tradition. Mm -hmm. We'll be talking about the Bhagavad Gita, yeah. and uh, that is uh, the great classic of uh, Indian yeah. literature, Hindu literature particularly, yeah. and it refers to these transcendental states. Yeah, that is the basis of Bhagavad Gita, because uh, as you know, the mo most important personality in Bhagavad Gita uh, is Arjuna, mm -hmm. who is a warrior, who is a hero, who is a heir apparent along with his brothers for a throne which was snatched away by his cousin family. Yes. So that leads to a warlike situation and Arjuna is in the battlefield and his maternal uncle, his philosopher, his guide, the divine incarnate Krishna has chosen to be his charioteer because Krishna had taken a vow on principle that he will not fight directly in the war and will not take any sides with either of the group camp. So, when he as a charioteer brings him into the battlefield, Arjuna sees and confesses a whole army and they are all his kitankins. Yes. So, his guru is there, his acharyas, the people who taught him archery, the warfare, they are there, his uncle, grand uncle his cousin brothers, his whole family is right opposite to him and he has to fight them, he has to kill them. So, he gets despondent, he gets dejected and he wants to get away, you know, there from a battlefield and he says, I don't need all this kingdom, I don't need anything, you know, I don't want to win this war by killing my own people. So, it's a deep moral and ethical dilemma that he faces. Mm -hmm. So, then Krishna was supposed to have tried to bring him out of a limited consciousness in which we identify ourselves with so many things, you mm -hmm. know. If I want to use a modern psychological term, 
it is biopsychosocial identity arjuna is in biopsychosocial identity arjuna the warrior prince yeah. krishna the charioteer who, who i guess is also a, an avatar of, yes. of the god vishnu yes yes so he starts giving him counseling in the modern sense mm -hmm. first you know he says this is not appropriate for a war hero to back up in the battlefield then he brings up the issue of fame and prestige and then he gradually you know moves further from the idea of social to psychological and tries to remove his conflict mm -hmm. and he says you are in this conflict because you are identifying with something which is not real the, the self that you have created is not the real self there is a self beyond which is transcendental which is spiritual and you need to go back go up so to say you can either say go up if you think it is higher you can say go back if you think that is the witness mm -hmm. so both you know the metaphor of up or back fits into this transcendental awareness in the sense of up it is lifting yourself up from the narrow framework if is stepping back you can be a witness to everything that happens so krishna says to arjuna there is a one classic statement which is referred all over yogasta kuru karmani being established in that state do all actions so which state it is the state of transcendence state of spiritual self awareness okay so that is the whole that is the whole essence of the gita teaching when when you are in this transcendental state you can engage in any action whatsoever yeah that will not taint you that will not affect you mm -hmm. yeah i you know it's always puzzled me because india is is the home of ahimsa the, the philosophy of nonviolence yes. and yet the great classic of spiritual literature is is urging arjuna the the warrior to go into battle and and defeat to the death his own cousins yes see you are seeing nonviolence in a limited uh, perspective when you see that the whole idea of violence is seen from a person to person angle yes or but here is a situation where a group of people have done violence uh, continuously yes and the violence of that kind which is with power uh, combined with power and needs to be met with the same kind of power because there is a, a statement within bhagavad gita which says guna guneshu pravartate that means the, there is another concept triguna mm -hmm. triguna means the fundamental principles of the universe there are three aspects to that one is called sattva which is the principle of illumination and creativity the second one is the principle of energy that is called rajas and the third one is the principle of inertia which is called tamas so these three principles are operating in the whole universe whether we call it matter or mind so krishna is telling it is these three principles which are operating in the whole universe and they are meeting you know they are in combination in everything so it is those principles which are meeting a violent principle is there in a very violent way that principle meets the another violent principle and nullifies it so even it is puzzling to me not only to you 
And to many Indians, it is puzzling that on the one hand, we speak of non-violence and on the other hand, this Bhagavad Gita speaks of the clashes, right? Mm -hmm. But it is puzzling to me and you because we are not in the transcendental state. And the people, the ages together, so many saints, so many rishis, so many yogis who have affirmed the idea of transcendence, who have affirmed the transcendental self, they are able to see it from a standpoint where they can reconcile the opposite of violence and non-violence. So, uh, me as a person functioning in the ordinary awareness cannot, you know, assert or justify what it is, but I can, within the understanding of my limited awareness, I mean, I am just putting across to you, mm -hmm. this is how it is seen in the tradition. Yes. I am, I am neither justifying it, nor I am explaining it away. Mm -hmm. I am just trying to say that when a person is in the transcendental state, then that person is said to have gone beyond the dualities, mm -hmm. the binaries. So, therefore, uh, whatever that has been said in the Bhagavad Gita, has come from a different dimension. So, we need to reach to that. We cannot bring it down. Mm -hmm. So, that's my point. I think it's useful for our viewers to uh, point out that the Bhagavad Gita is one section in a much larger work called the Mahabharata, which, which goes into great detail about the injustices that occurred that lead up to, to the battlefield. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's a, a, a great epic poem comparable, I suppose, to Homer's Iliad or Odyssey. Yeah, that is true. There are many different versions of Bhagavad Gita uh, and uh, people have uh, here and there, they have mentioned that the existing version is an accumulation of the oral tradition. And in the beginning, you know, it was only a few poems, you see, now it has added on. Mm -hmm. But you see, Indian time scale, India, when exactly the Mahabharata war happened and uh, how, we, how many centuries ago, nobody is able to pin down exactly. Mm -hmm. So, in a continuous oral tradition, where poems of wisdom can, could have been added to that. Mm -hmm. But the existing version is faithfully followed by people who believe in that. Yeah. So, my take on this as a psychologist, see, I am looking at it as a psychologist. My take is, what is being said in the Bhagavad Gita? In the first chapter is what is called Arjuna Vishada Yoga, where there is a description of uh, what is the battlefield, the uh, how Arjuna got into despondency and he describes his own mental and physiological state to Krishna and Krishna listens to him. So, it is like, you know, the first interview session with a client who is in distress. Mm -hmm. So, the whole of first chapter, one part of that is that. Another part is the opposite character, Duryodhana, who is actually the person who was responsible in a way uh, for the, you know, this whole situation of war. Mm -hmm. And his father is Dhritarashtra, who was blind, born, and he's uh, been uh, explained or described by his own charioteer, who was given the divine vision, you can say clairvoyance who describes the battlefield to him sitting in the palace. This is what is happening, you know, the, all the elephants, all the horses, all the, you know, all the army is now coming, now they are standing here, 
so and so is standing, Bhima is standing there, Arjuna is standing here, and Duryodhana is in that place, Bhishma is in that place. So all this is described to Dhritarashtra by his charity through a distant vision which is given to him by Krishna. Similar to what a parapsychologists today call remote viewing. Remote viewing, exactly. Yeah. In fact, Dhritara Krishna offers Dhritarashtra himself the remote viewing mm -hmm. capacity because he was divine incarnate. Mm -hmm. Uh, it sounds, you know, uh, far-fetched now uh, for us. Well, not but to me. <laughs> okay, not to you. That's good. Uh, so, but Dhritarashtra declines. He says, I can't see all that by myself. So, don't bestow that to me. Mm -hmm. You bestow that to my charity and he will be there for me to describe everything. Mm -hmm. So, the first chapter of the Bhagavad Gita is full of that description of the battlefield, Arjuna's despondence. Mm -hmm. And from the second chapter up to 18th chapter, there, there is a whole range of discussion about, you know, what is the human, basic human nature. Uh, why, you know, how we are born with what you call uh, good or divine dispositions and also demonic dispositions. How we have to overcome in life and how we have to attain the highest state that is the transcendence you see and what are the two paths you know in the second uh, chapter itself the two paths will come the two paths are called sankhya and yoga mm. sankhya is the path of intellect path of knowledge yoga is the path of action effortful action mm -hmm. in a very broad sense so you can inquiry, it's, it, you know, the path of inquiry and the path of action. So, the, in the rest of the chapters, Krishna has been actually elaborating on uh, what exactly is the path of inquiry and what exactly is the path of yoga. So, the, uh, the path of yoga, he also speaks of Nishkama Karma Yoga. That means action without attachment or action with detachment or uh, acting without getting attached oneself to fruits of one's action. Mm -hmm. So, there is another famous statement which most of the Hindus, uh, you know, keep hearing about it. Karmanyevadikaraste maphaleshu kadachana. That means you have right only on your action, not on the reward. Mm -hmm. This is completely opposite of internal locus of control, where you see that we have the internal external locus of control, where the internal locus of control is, I believe the rewards will follow my action only based on my action. Whereas the external locus of control belief is that besides my action, some fate or luck or chance or something actually, you know, gives you the benefit, gives you the result. So, this is well-known locus of control concept which came up in 1966. Uh, you are familiar. Oh, with sure. It's it's well understood in, in in psychology. I think I yeah. uh, the way I would understand that concept is yeah. is that internal locus of control means that people take responsibility for themselves, and an external locus of control is usually I had no choice. I had to do this because of other events or circumstances forced me. And typically, I think successful people uh, have more internal locus of control yeah, in our culture. That is right. Mm -hmm. But the taking responsibility part is one thing. Yeah. But uh, the the actual definition of internal locus and external locus, yeah. which was given by Ferres, uh, Julian Rotter, and uh, one more person. Uh, so these three is that. Basically, what you believe. Do you believe that 
the outcome depends on your action or do you believe depends on the fate or chance or luck. Yeah. So there was, uh, you know, back in 1970s when I was a student, mm -hmm. many researchers uh, did cross-cultural work, you see, and they came up with the view that generally the Asians, Indians are externally in locus of controlled belief. Because they believe more in fate, chance, luck, etc. Whereas the Western individualistic society, people believe more in internal locus of control. Mm. So this was some kind of a stereotype. Yes. But actually, if you look into the Indian tradition, Indian tradition has never, uh, you know, uh, agreed with the idea of fate, chance or luck as the final outcome. Because the your effort is always recognized, you know, but there is a higher dimension within which you are operating. Now, when you take our action, our action always happens within whatever information and knowledge we have about the consequence of my action. But that depends upon my awareness and my understanding of what are all the relevant variables, how much I can control. Mm -hmm. But in the cosmic plan, there could be variables which are beyond our control. We are not aware of. It is not in our hands to control them. Mm -hmm. and, they, and there is a cosmic plan. So therefore, you are supposed to act, but you are also supposed to take into account the transcendental or the cosmic dimension and act. Yes. So, your control is not just personal, it is transpersonal. So, here in the Bhagavad Gita, it is saying the same thing. You have a right to act or right not to act. You see? Or you can do something else also. But in any given situation, when you act, you have a motive to act or a resolution. Then you need certain instruments or way of achieving what you want. Okay, you must have a goal and you must have that intense desire to act. But even if you have all these things which will lead to success, it says, Panchamam Daiva Chintanam. The fifth one is divine thinking. You know, the outcome may be influenced by something which is higher. So, therefore, you prepare yourself with four aspects and act. And uh, don't expect the result to turn out in the same way mm. because there is a fifth one which is not in your control. It is not a variable you can control. Mm. No, in in other words, you, you can control your action, but you can't control the final outcome. Outcome. That is exactly. Mm -hmm. So, that is the crux of Karma Yoga, mm -hmm. according to Bhagavad Gita. So, therefore, if you attach yourself to the outcome, then you start feeling, you know, depressed, dejected. You start, you know, all kinds of negative emotions can start occurring to you. So, better you do it with the awareness that there is a higher dimension where the final outcome will be determined. So, this is one of the important teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. And, uh, you know, the, the another teaching of Bhagavad Gita is, comes out in a concept called Stita Pragna. Stita Pragna means a person established in that higher awareness. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in the second chapter, Arjuna, the war hero, uh, he is told 
by Krishna that be a sthita pragna, be established in that higher awareness. So uh, Arjuna asked Krishna, okay, who is a sthita pragna? What are his characteristics? I don't know. Uh, you know, I learned some of these things when I was in high school, ninth standard. It was part of my Sanskrit teaching class, you know. Mm -hmm. So, in that I say, Sthita Pragnasya Kaubhasha, what are his characteristics? How does he sit? How does he walk? How does he speak? Tell me. So, Arjuna is asking Krishna, give me the behavioral description of a sthita pragna. Mm. <laughs> so, then uh, Krishna answers. The first sloka says, how sthita pragna will be? He will not be aggrieved in sorrow. It says, dukkeshu anudvignamanaha, sukeshu vigataspruhaha. He is not grieved in sorrow. He is not over-exuberant, over-excited when something, happiness occurs. Okay. And then he has uh, conquered desire, fear, anger. See, desire, fear and anger. He has overcome them. Mm. He is said to be a sthita pragna, one who has achieved a balanced state of mind. So, what does it mean is, you may have a transcendental experience and you may be in a transcendent state, but you may also experience some sorrow. It is not that you are completely freed from sorrow, as Bhagavad Gita teaches. Mm -hmm. You will have sorrow, but you will not get agitated. You will not become overexcited or depressed or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or you will experience the happy situation, but you are not overexcited by even that. So that's equanimity, equanimity of mind. Mm -hmm. So the first thing Krishna teaches Arjuna is to develop the equanimity of mind to remain in that state. And then, you know, there are so many other verses within that stanza. So, where Krishna is teaching Arjuna how uh, one has to overcome, one has to control the mind, you see, and how if you start thinking about something, how because of thinking itself, you know, you get attached to that, you know, and then how that attachment will result in desire and uh, result when the desire is not fulfilled, how it leads to frustration and how when uh, frustration occurs, then the anger comes, you know, the classic frustration, aggression hypothesis. So, that comes up and then when you are in aggression, in aggressive mood, how you lose the discriminative ability and how it can lead to your downfall. So, there is a, you know, dhyayato vishayan pumsaha sangaste shupajayate sangat sanjayate kamaha kamat krodho vijayate krodat bhavati sammoha sammohat smriti vibramaha Smriti Brahmshad Buddhinasho Buddhinashat Pranashyati. The man is completely lost. So it's a sequence, you see, it's a continuous sequence which Krishna is describing mm -hmm. to Arjuna. It sounds like a very detailed psychological process. Yes, it is a very detailed psychological process. And Whatever that we are speaking today about negative conditioning and, you know, the conditioning stimulus and everything, all that is, you know, play, put together inside that. Mm -hmm. So, it, and then, you know, there are other uh, verses where uh, how the mind will, you know, go away. It is like uh, the sail of a boat which is 
cut asunder will simply fly off in the air like that how the mind has will fly so how we need to regulate it and tie it you know and how to control it so that is another thing so there are about uh, some 20 verses uh, or 20 or 22 where you you get a classical description of what is mind how it functions how to regulate it how to you know with uh, you know come out of your desire your negative emotions and somebody can take up a whole uh, dissertation on that and try to work it out mental Pretty discipline mental discipline basically mm-hmm. yeah so finally when you reach the transcendent state what it is that's also described yes so it's a state of an extraordinary peace that's how it says shanti so a person will reach shanti which is sanskrit for peace peace yes sanskrit for peace exactly Mm -hmm. yeah a peace which is associated with transcendent state Uh Uh, it is not just the peace which comes by switching off this fan or stop talking it is antarmauna internal silence well, I know the Bhagavad Gita goes into great detail describing uh, the, the nuances of the transcendental state. Exactly. Yeah. It, it speaks of, you see, the nuances of transcendental states are described separately in one of the chapters. So, it is, it also speaks of uh, va- various differentiated states uh, of uh, which is uh, not exactly the way Patanjali's Yoga Sutra speaks. Mm. It gives a kind of a description of the ultimate state of that meditation where how you meditate, what you do, how you have to meditate, and all those descriptions are given. And and then, as I understand it, the real highlight of the Bhagavad Gita is when Krishna reveals himself as, as the incarnation of Vishnu. Yes, that is that is true, uh, because he is the reincarnation of Vishnu. He reveals his. Uh, true nature because Krishna as a human being and Krishna as an incarnation of Vishnu are two different things. So, there is a description of it and usually that description is portrayed in uh, movies or in artwork as you know a whole lot of uh, things happening around him death destruction happening uh, you know people are created so many things and all those descriptions are there I cannot uh, answer uh, whether that is how it happened or it did not happen because uh, when, uh, but those descriptions are there, but I cannot say anything on that. I don't want to comment on that particular part. But Arjuna gets a real understanding of who Krishna is in his completeness. Mm-hmm. Because if I say anything, then uh, it is all uh, secondary information I will be repeating to you. As uh, you know, people have understood, we had a television serial called Mahabharata. So, in the television serial, the producer and the directors have come up with uh, visions of that Vishnu, see? Based on uh, thorough research in different versions of Mahabharata, Mm -hmm. how it was, what it was, and all that. Now, uh, well, we just have to accept that. And the only thing I can say as a psychologist again is, it is possible that you experience 
situations because you know Stanislav Graf did psychedelic research and later switched to holotropic breathing uh, method technique yes. and uh, here many of the participants in his uh, you know workshops uh, came up with descriptions of different uh, worlds different realities they spoke about it all that is documented so in that some of the descriptions are goes back to certain uh, my you know description given in our mythologies what mm -hmm. we call purana so it is possible that our psyche you see the psyche is limited uh, and you know william james often quoted uh, statement normal waking consciousness is one possible consciousness where the, whereas there are other consciousness you know lying just be stimulated and without reckoning with all that our uh, our uh, account with reality is incomplete mm -hmm. see this is what william james has said right so indian tradition has also triggered all that awareness it so when you trigger to all that experiences it is possible that uh, so many different uh, phenomena may be perceived I, th I think the Buddhists refer to 10,000 visions. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so, in a way, transpersonal research is an in an empirical verification and validation of our Puranas. As far as I see it, it was once, uh, it is described there. But how many thousands of years ago, how many centuries ago, we don't know how it happened. Mm -hmm. But today, should we believe in that? Should we not believe in that? If we believe in that, we ask, okay, what is the, who, who has experienced it? Okay, now the one of the empirical evidence that we can consider is the varieties of psychedelic experiences. Master in Houston. Yes. It was published uh, back in 1977 or 78 when I was doing my doctoral studies. I caught hold of that book and I read all those descriptions. Oh, yes. Yes. So it is possible that such experiences are there. But all of them are psycholo psychological experiences. Mm -hmm. But the Indian tradition says go beyond the psyche and there is self, Atman. So, that subtle distinction need to be, uh, you know, retained. The Atman is like the, the ground of all ground, being. Ground of being, exactly. Mm -hmm. It's the ground awareness. In the, in the back of, backdrop of that ground awareness, all the phenomenological reality, whatever that is happening, is happening. And... Uh, it is like, you know, you go to the Quiet Tower, for example, or you go to Eiffel Tower or uh, Empire State Building or wherever. A high point, you have windows, all the signs, right? So if you look through that window, you get one particular landscape. If you look at that window, you get another landscape. You turn to a third window, you get another landscape. Okay, all that landscape is you are getting differently because the window from which you are looking is limited and it is in a way directed or focused in one particular direction. So our normal consciousness are like those windows. So we are looking at reality within a particular framework and we are getting exposed to certain aspects of reality. Even an exalted visionary experience yeah. is yet another window. Yeah, another window. Yeah. yeah. So, Psyche is infinite. Mm -hmm. Psyche is compared to nature. You know, in the Indian tradition, our Psyche is compared to nature. Or nature itself is Psyche. Because the Sankhya system, uh, speaks of the evolution of nature uh, from the psychological point of view. How there is a, a microcosmic and macrocosmic correspondence. So, 
all that thinking is there in the Indian tradition. And uh, we have a perspective where nature is also seen as an evolute of the mind. You know, all the uh, constructionism, not the social constructionism that I am speaking of. The deeper level. Uh, it, it is a constructionism of physical reality also. Mm -hmm. It is not the social constructionism which uh, related to cultural differences, mm -hmm. etc. Even at a deeper level. So, therefore, uh, you see when you ask the question about uh, uh, Arjuna saying the Vishwarupa, it is called Vishwarupa Darshana. Vishwa is universe. Uh, you know, giving a giving a vision of the whole cosmos, mm -hmm. whole universe. Mm -hmm. uh, how it was, uh, I being a very ordinary psychologist sitting here, I cannot visualize what Arjuna saw. But we can kind of, uh, you know, uh, through our thinking and inference, we can try to bridge mm -hmm. what could have happened. Well, you know, uh, to the Western mind, uh, yeah. to Americans in particular, uh, there was a moment when the very first atomic bomb was exploded and Robert o. Oppenheimer, the physicist yes. who developed the atomic bomb, when he saw that explosion, he said, brighter than 10,000 suns. Yes. And he was quoting from the Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. It was as if in an atomic explosion, Oppenheimer thought, you know, God was revealing himself, uh, which I, I, is, is sort of evocative of, of the idea of the war and the battlefield and, and many of the tensions that we spoke of earlier. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah. As you explained to me yesterday, the, doesn't the Bhagavad Gita really say that this transcendental state is beyond all description? Yeah, it is beyond all description. So, uh, whatever description comes, it is post the state. When, when you are in that ground awareness state, uh, when the ground of being is there, there cannot be any description because in one of the Upanishads, older Upanishads, it is said, what is that state? It says where the mind and speech will return from the, uh, you know, uh, what you call the dividing line, you know, it can go up to that point. And after that, mind and speech will return. So it is said, Yato vacho nivartante aprapya manasasaha. Along with mind, where the speech also returns, it is that state. So what state? That state. So now, having experienced that state, when people are asked, when somebody has to give a description, how can you describe something which can, which doesn't have a referent altogether, neither in the name nor in the form? So you, you don't have a referent for that. But still, if you have to describe, then you think of some metaphors, some analogies, and you try to put it across you see, it depends upon your vocabularies. Mm -hmm. I, I tell you how, uh, how this, uh, you know, experiencing is one thing, describing and explaining is another thing. Because much of the problem today, uh, as far as transpersonal psychology, parapsychology, and many of the phenomenon, is not the question of experience. It is the question of describing it adequately and explaining it. You see, you ask, uh, you ask people across the world, people across the world, common people, lay people have, many have experienced, uh, you know, such phenomena, precognitive dreams. Yesterday we were talking, you were referring to your own experience. I refer to my father's experience, my brother's experience. I was referring to that. Mm -hmm. 
I, I, I can't say they were lying to me. What will they gain by telling some lies about me? They, had, they were sharing their experiences with me. But how it happens, when you ask the question how it happens, it's a, it's a matter of explanation. So when, when you can't explain something, either you reject the phenomenon or you distort it as it has happened in psychoanalysis. You know, uh, you call it hallucination, right? You call it something else or you say, oh, forget it. Uh, it is not possible. But people who undergo some experience, they have to communicate it. Okay. So, even a very ordinary thing like uh, eating something and saying whether it is sweet or sour. See, sweet and sour are concepts, basically. That's all. And uh, how did we arrive at sweet and sour? How, you know, sugar is sweet, uh, tamarind is sour. How did we arrive at that? We, we, how did I and you agree on that? So there is some kind of a mutual validation, mm -hmm. intersubjective agreement yes. between me and you regarding the state. Is it sweet? Huh. How, how, how are we really saying that sweet? If you just reflect upon that, it is some kind of a learning where we are taught, you know, this, this is sweet. That's the name, you know, what we call in Sanskrit Nama. Uh, an object is called Rupa. That object can be, a, you know, not necessarily a concrete thing. It could be abstract also like the experiencing of sweetness, for example. So, what is sweetness? If can anybody describe what is sweetness or sourness? It's very individual. What, very what is sweet to me may not be could be sour to you for all we know. For all we know, but still we but still we agree, right? We agree that if we both taste sugar, we call it sweet. Sweet. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did that intersubjective agreement came up in the beginning? In the, to begin with, yeah. you just reflect upon that. Then you will see that if we cannot exactly describe and give an explanation how we agreed on the sweetness of the sugar, how can we agree on a transcendental phenomenon? Right. It is so difficult. Well, I would imagine the ancient rishis were confronted with this problem. Yeah, they did. They did. They, for that, they used, you know, the Upanishads was... Uh, just that. Actually, it was sharing, you know. Upanishad in Sanskrit means sitting near, like you and me are sitting, uh, sharing our experiences, elaborating upon, discussing about it, clarifying, mm -hmm. arriving at some terminologies and concepts. Mm -hmm. So, this is, Upanishads are full of this only. Mm -hmm. uh, and Bhagavad Gita is also considered as a kind of a Upanishad because Krishna is speaking about uh, a state of existence to Arjuna and he is clarifying that and he is trying to say in the ultimate cosmic plan what is your role, what is your place and what are you supposed to do at that moment. So, it is, it is all, you know, to be seen in the backdrop of a broader vision, a broader understanding of reality. And, and so Arjuna has this vision. He, yes. he understands the divine nature of consciousness. Yes. yes. And, and then, uh, as, as I understand, the Bhagavad Gita closes and, and then Arjuna goes into battle. Yeah. Before that, before that, mm -hmm. Krishna tells in the last verse, he says, I have told you all these things now. But even now, the choice is yours. He is like a Roger, you know, unconditional positive regard. Being non-directive, mm -hmm. he tells Arjuna, Yathechasi tatha kuru. 
यू डू वॉट एवर वे यू लाइक आई हैव गिवन यू ऑल दिस इंफॉर्मेशन आई हैव गिवन यू ऑल दिस नॉलेज बट नाउ द चॉइस इज यूवर्स डू वॉन्ट टू रन अवे फ्रॉम द बैटल फील्ड और यू वॉन्ट टू गो एंड फाइट द वॉर सी दैट्स द ब्यूटी गिविंग ऑल द नॉलेज बट स्टिल बींग नॉन डायरेक्टिव देर because arjuna uh, has a choice he could choose a path of non-violence but i gather that that the choice he chooses is related to the concept of dharma yes see this concept of non-violence uh is definitely part of indian tradition you know you are familiar with the jaina tradition yes so in the jaina tradition you know that they will take food before 6 o'clock in the evening because they feel that by chance some insects may go inside and you know they will be killed uh so they don't want to harm any even an insect and uh, if you have seen the jain uh, muni they are called jain muni though they will uh put a white cloth they will cover their mouth with a white cloth and uh, you must have seen in the pictures or in reality they don't want even insects to go inside being killed so to that level the idea of non violence has been taken now this is uh, we should point out this is not a vedic tradition it is not a vedic tradition yeah. so uh in the vedic tradition uh, we had animal sacrifices whereas in the jaina tradition the non violence was taken to another extreme yes but you see the both vedic tradition and jaina tradition uh, are supposed to be contemporaneous they existed in as ancient time as we can think of in indian culture mm-hmm. so what happens is Uh, these two traditions have emerged independently perhaps and nobody knows exactly when uh, they developed which precedes or which is anterior they both is very it? very ancient yeah very very ancient and uh, there are lots of uh, uh, claims controversies as mm-hmm. to a uh, general belief is vedic tradition is ancient that is the general belief but there is no again uh, you know clear chronological uh, uh timetable no but as you explained to me earlier the the one date that we know of clearly is the buddha yes ar- around 4 500 bc and, and these traditions would be prior prior to that all they are all prior to that and that very ancient so how they develop these uh, you know on the yagna and the uh, violence involved in animal sacrifice and the you know non violent movement all these are very ancient and the idea of non violence as uh, i have understood i can only explain uh you see uh, violence if you go back to the idea of aggression how does aggression emerge as we have studied in psychology uh it is fundamentally related to our sense of security when our sense of survival and security are threatened we have to defend and in the process of defending one becomes aggressive right yes so the aggression ultimately is related to one's survival and one's existence and how do i get threatened i can get threatened from the other i i is there as a self and there is an other which threatens me the other need not be a human being for example if a motor vehicle is coming fast or if a boulder starts falling if a rock starts falling suddenly where i am then also my existential uh, you know security need mm-hmm. gets triggered the survival instinct survival instinct 
So then I have a fight or flight reaction, which is basic, right? Mm -hmm. So when it is a rock coming down, I better f f you know flight, not fight, because I cannot fight that. Yeah. But we have crossed that kind of physical danger situations, which was which is mostly common in other animals in other where they feel more threatened by other animals. Mm. They have all that. Yeah. So we have overcome one level of that sense of uh, survival necessity. But the survival ha has shifted from the biological survival to psychological level, where the survival of the sense of identity and the ego. Okay, so when that ego survival is threatened, then, you know, the, all the defense mechanisms are invoked. Mm -hmm. Freud is correct there. Freud spoke of defense mechanisms and uh, all that comes into picture. Okay. So now, how does that happen? Because I feel threatened because I have that sense of self and separateness. Okay. So then I feel threatened. But if you are able to go beyond that feeling of separateness. Do you feel threatened by the other when you are grounded in your identity, which is not just egoic? Uh, then uh, the idea of self-other boundary is transcended. Okay, so, so, so you don't get into aggression, you don't get into violence. Mm -hmm. So that is why the differentiation between the self and the other, when it is transcended, perhaps non-violence will emerge automatically in that state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Because we have, I have read in the biographies of many mystics, uh, many yogis, you know, uh, who are authentic, and, uh, you know, many animals, even wild animals, you know, they feel calm in the presence of great Maharshis. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, because they can relate. They have kind of that feeling of fear. Insecurity has gone completely uh, from them. So, in the, in the biography of Ramana Maharshi, you come across uh, many such instances being recorded. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, I think more you evolve spiritually, less you see the differentiation between the self and the other. More and more non-violent you will become. And, and even the survival instinct think, becomes less, less important. Less, yeah, less important. Your uh, awareness is grounded in the Atman. Yes. Then... then Life and death take on a whole different perspective. perspective. That is exactly. But for others, you ca you can consciously practice. See that uh, you know that is one of the prescriptions in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, ahimsa. Uh, you know you have yama and niyama. Yes. So you have ahimsa, satya, asteya, brahmacharya, parigraha. You have four, five ethical. Uh, practices uh, which you have to do, you see, in your social interaction. The first one is ahimsa, non-violent. You have to consciously practice. If you have to consciously practice, it is, you, you have to practice means you have to stop thinking uh, self and other boundary, first of all, you know. We, we tend to protect our ego. The tendency to protect one's ego has to slowly decrease. All these practices are geared towards that. And non-violence is a part of that. So, you f less and less you feel threatened. More and more you become non-violent. So, it's some kind of a reciprocal relation. And it's a gradual evolution.
So in the Bhagavad Gita, even though Krishna does, or Arjuna, Arjuna does go into battle, he might just as readily have chosen a, a, a different choice and it would have been consistent with the teachings of Krishna. Yes, there is one particular uh, reference to exactly death, you know, how death is viewed uh, in Bhagavad Gita. So, what Krishna tells Arjuna is, you see, you are thinking, Oh God, I am going to kill all these people. I am going to commit a crime. But, I have already killed them, Krishna says. I have already killed them. I have not understood the metaphorical or the hidden meaning of it. You see, maybe another few years when I mature, I may understand it. Mm. But along with that, he says something about life and death, which I think is very important uh, to understand. He says, you see, souls take birth after birth. Okay. So, what is death? And what is life? So, Krishna tells Arjuna, Look, what will you do when your clothes are worn out? You will throw the worn out cloth, cast it out away, and you will put on a new dress. That's all you do, right? Mm -hmm. So, similarly, there is a soul in the body. That is called Dehin. Deha means body. Dehin means the one who resides in the body. So, you know, the soul. So, this soul is throwing away, the casting away the torn cloth and it is taking on a new cloth, new body. So, what is your problem? You are not, when you say killing, you are not really killing the person, that's a soul that will continue its journey. In this incarnation, in this, as a soul, Duryodhana or uh, his brothers or anybody have done something and uh, they need to be punished. But you are not killing Duryodhana's soul. You are, you are not doing it. You cannot do that. So, so it is just that. See, now this is a perspective where the issue of reincarnation mm -hmm. is so clearly told. Yeah. Now what happens is, everything that is told in Mahabharata, or Ramayana, or Upanishads, or Bhagavad Gita, or, it is all spoken from a transcendental perspective. Okay. Now, if I speak from a waking standpoint, without having any glimpse of what transcendence could be. There is always a confusion. You cannot reconcile. I, I used to give, when I had to explain transcendence in the class to my students, I used to give an analogy which many students uh, think was very useful to them to understand. You know, in Mysore, where I live, we have a hill called Chamundi Hill where the goddess Chamundi temple is there, which is one of the tourist attractions, right? So, I used to give the example. You go to the foot of the Chamundi hill and you stand. What do you see? Whatever you see in the front, a whole landscape, there may be houses, there may be trees, there may be a water flowing creek or a river, rivulet. Whatever is there in front of your eyes, you are seeing. Okay? So now you climb up several steps. You go to halfway to the top. And then you stand. What happens? Your vision is not ground vision. Okay? You start seeing a much farther view of Mysore city depending upon which direction you are facing, okay? 
then you know, you see many things which you could not have seen when you are in the foothill. But halfway, you see so many things. And then you go to the top of the hill. When you go to the top of the hill, you see a 360 degree view of all that is there. Okay. So now we will imagine. Okay. Uh, a bus is going. Uh, in the foothill, I see a bus moving from this end to that end. I am able to see that much. Okay. So it is present to me. And then I go halfway. I see that that bus has gone further. I go still further. I see that a bus is coming far away. Another bus is going far away that side. Another bus is going here. So you imagine the one in the far left, one in the far right, that is past. Mm -hmm. This is future. The one in the center is the present. Now, what I could see in the foothill was the present. But what you can see is the past and the future. So Krishna is telling Arjuna, I am able to see the past and future of all these people. But you are only seeing the present. That's why you have all this conflict. Don't bother. Just do whatever you mm -hmm. require. You know, I know from where they were born, what they are going to happen in the future to them. So now, standing in the foothill, standing in the top of the hill, gives you a different vision and perspective. So, whatever that we have inherited from India, uh, with all that wisdom, has come from the top of the hill. And I am standing in the foot of the hill. And I cannot evaluate that vision from my vision standing here. That's the basic issue. <laughs> you know. mm -hmm. uh -huh. Well, Kieran, thank you so much for sharing your, your insights, your wisdom. I think you're not just at the bottom of the hill. You have climbed up a few times, and, and I'm so delighted to be able to share that with our viewers. So thank you so much for coming to Albuquerque and being with me. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure that I got uh, a chance to meet you and have some conversation with you. That's great. And yeah. thank you yeah. for being with us. Thank you.